Let me uh, say a prayer and we'll get started, okay? Father, thank you for this time we have together. We're grateful for the time we can come and reason together, look into the history which always reveals you in one way or another. I pray for your blessing on us this evening, for all the folks here in Christ's name. Amen. We are actually in a series called Beginnings and Endings. It's a study of the book of Genesis, and then we're just going to roll right into a study of the book of Revelation. In the middle of our study of uh, Genesis, we took a little pause to deal with a kind of a related topic. For those of you that are new, we do take questions during class. That's the number to text your questions to. By the way, uh, I forget to tell you this sometimes. People have asked, do we plant these questions or do we make them up? We do not make up these questions. Uh, every question that gets asked, you have, have asked it. And I know in our last session, we're talking about jihad and the crusades and are they morally equivalent? That was kind of the essence, the essential question we started with. And we only got through the jihad. We had a lot of questions. But I want you to understand, there were twice as many that didn't get asked. So we, we do our best, we had a lot of questions. I realized that was more than we usually do and so it kind of slowed us down. But my wife came up with a solution. She said, you know, Terry, if you were a little less long-winded in your answers, but she said that in the kindest way possible. She said, I believe we could get through these questions a little bit faster, so I'm going to endeavor to be a little less long-winded. It's just the questions are so interesting, and they bring up interesting topics, but I'll try to curb that just a little bit. So we are in the book of Genesis. Actually, what we talked about uh, was we were talking about Abraham. And by the way, in our next lesson, we're going to pick up with the Jacob story, which is probably the most fascinating story to me, uh, in Genesis, and then Joseph, and then we'll move into the book of Revelation. But we took a little break because after Abraham, we spoke of Ishmael and Isaac, and current events had transpired such that there was a suggestion that jihad and the Crusades were in some sense morally equivalent, and uh, it's created a bit of a controversy, and I thought, well, here we are at the progenitors of Islam and, of course, the Jews and Christianity. So through the line of Ishmael, you get Muhammad, 570 A.D. and Islam through the line of Isaac, you get the Jewish, the tribes of Israel, then Jesus, and obviously Christians, and there's been enmity there, historic enmity, not always, but a historic basis for enmity between Ishmael and Isaac, and you've seen it play out in their descendants. Well, in our last lesson, I want to give you a very brief review, we, and here's the structure. I wanted to look at Islamic Jihad, its basis in the Quran and its basis in history, particularly in Muhammad's lifetime. Then I want to move to the Christian Crusades in the early Middle Ages. Then I want to move to modern times and show some continuity of those and then ask the question, now that we know what we, everything that we know, can we make some evaluative statements? Again, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I at least want us to have a rational historical perspective so that we can form an intelligent opinion. Because frankly, some of the, the views that are out there today are just borderline delusional from a historic point of view. So I'm not gonna tell you what to think, but I at least would like you to be somewhat reasonably informed. Let's go back to Islamic Jihad, very brief review. We looked at it from the point of view of the Quran and then the history of Muhammad's life. First, the Quran. The Quran is, is the holy book of Islam. It's not the only authoritative text in Islam, but it is the most authoritative text. The Quran is composed of 114 
chapters, what in English we call them chapters, each of them was a separate, quote, revelation from Gabriel to Muhammad. They occurred from 610 to 632 A.D., so over about a 22-year period, these 114 separate revelations, which Muhammad then recited to his followers verbally. They're collected about 650 A.D., around that time, into a book. You know, they showed up on, the pay, on Barnes & Noble at 650 A.D., and so you could buy the book at that point. I do want you to understand that the chapters of the Koran are not in chronological order. For example, the 96th chapter was the first, quote, revelation that Muhammad got. So they're like our Bible. The Bible's not organized in terms of chronologically the various letters in the New Testament are organized in a different way, not a bad way. And it's not bad that the Quran is ordered that way, but I thought it helpful to show you some of the statements about the relation between Islam and pagans and the people of the book, which would be Jews and Christians, and the evolution through time of those sayings. So we ordered them chronologically. We matched that up with Muhammad's life chronologically. This is a busy map, but it's very instructive. But basically, you see the Arabian Peninsula, and that's where in Muhammad's lifetime, he died in 632 AD, so well, well after Jesus' time, by the end of his lifetime, he had conquered basically Saudi Arabia today. Then you'll notice the color codes show you that between then and 750, very short time historically, look how much uh, the armies of Islam had conquered, all the way to India in the east and all the way to the borders of France in the west on the border of Europe, all around North Africa. In Muhammad's life, what I tried to show you something I think is particularly useful because people struggle with, why can you quote verses in the Quran that sound pretty peaceful and let's all get along together, and why can you also quote verses that are kill people that don't believe wherever you find them? I mean, very warlike verses. So we put those in chronological order and you saw them going from relatively benign to very, very warlike. Muhammad's life from 610 to 632, when he begins getting the revelations, in Mecca, he's fairly powerless, and he's preaching a more, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but basically you'll see those more coexisting kind of statements. He's kicked out, goes to Medina, starts raising an army. That's where you see him becoming very hostile to Jews. And we talked about the beheading of six to 800 uh, male uh, Jew, of a Jewish tribe, of the males of a Jewish tribe, and you begin to see the verses get a little more so. He basically has success in uniting the tribes, goes back to Mecca and conquers it, and basically by his death conquers Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula. And so by putting you know, his relatively increasing strength militarily beside the chronology of the Quran, my point to you is, is that I think there's a clear pattern there that shows the more aggressive verses in the Quran mirror the success militarily. Then after his death, you see the world there. So about 750 AD, that's what the world looked like in that part of the world. One other thing I think I failed to mention is a principle of the Quran, and you can find this interesting in two ways, is there's no grace there's no idea of Jesus as a sacrifice for your sins. Jesus is in the Quran, but not at all 
in the role of the New Testament. It's virtually an unrecognizable Jesus. He wasn't really crucified in the Quranic version. He didn't die for your sins. You're not made righteous through faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. None of that. It's a works-based thing. At the end of your life, your good deeds and your bad deeds are weighed, and if the good deeds outweigh it, then you get on to heaven. If not, you're in deep, deep trouble. So it's very much a works-based kind of an idea. Hence the idea of jihad, and the idea you hear today is that if you engage in a jihad, it basically bypasses that and tips your scale so heavily toward good deeds that you're in. You're going to see something a little similar in the Crusades. That's not even slightly a Christian idea, but it was a Catholic idea for a little period of time in the Crusades. So that's the Koran, that's Muhammad's life, that's Islamic Jihad. So the foundation of Islam has that very uh, aggressive, expansionistic phrase to it. Early Christianity looks totally different than this, but this is the history of Islam. Clarifying question? Um, yes. How accurate or consistent is the Koran over the centuries? Do we have the same kind of stringent copying rules that we had with Hebrew texts and the Bible? Can we consider it to be as accurate? Essentially, is the Koran faithfully copied through the centuries? Essentially, yes. It was originally spoken in Arabic, it's written down in Arabic, it's considered to be the pinnacle of Arabic scholarship and grammar and the language, and it was fairly meticulously copied. Painting with a broad brush, yes. It's a good question. Are there very early copies? Oh, that's a good question, how early, and I don't remember the earliest text of that. That's a good question, I should have just uh, researched that. But there's, I think, in my view, fairly good attestation that the Korans that you see today are within reason of the Koran that you would have seen in, in approximately 650. So, not a lot of issue about that. There are issue, other issues with the Koran, but that does not seem to me to be an issue. Well, let's move forward. Okay, I want you to just look at this map for a second, because I'm going to go from 750 AD, I'm going to fast forward about 350 years, and the map's not going to change much. I mean, it's going to look a little different, but notice all that area that's controlled by Islamic armies in that time. Now I'm going to fast forward to 1095. Okay, a little different map, but look again at all that purple area. You see on the west, Muslims control Spain all the way up to the border of uh, France, to the east, all the way over to uh, the Indus River and India, in other words, all through North Africa. So in that 350 years, there have been battles between the Christian kingdoms, but fundamentally Islam has expanded and maintained that. It is huge in the time period of 1095. You have in Europe at this point two Christian kingdoms that are warring against Islam, continuing to try, and the goal of Islam, by the way, is a worldwide caliphate. They're continually trying to expand so that the whole world will become Muslim. That is the mandate then as now with, with many Muslims, but certainly then. In green, you have what's called the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire, I want you to think about it this way. Think Eastern Orthodox. So that is a kingdom, a political kingdom, and they're Eastern Orthodox Christians. Okay? Their capital is Constantinople. That's modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. 
So that's a Christian kingdom fighting regular battles to keep the Muslims from expanding and taking over. To the west, in Italy, you have Rome, you have the Holy Roman Empire, basically. So you have this Roman Empire, which is Catholic. So you've got Britain and France and Germany as nations, but they're Catholic, and they're answerable to the Pope in Rome. So you have these two great kingdoms, both Christian, one Catholic, one Eastern Orthodox. That's 1095. This is right on the cusp of the Crusades. The Crusades happen between about 1097 and 1291. Basically, about a 200-year period, you have seven major crusades and, and several minor ones. And people are going to count this differently. You'll see some things say there were eight crusades, whatever. Seven big crusades and a bunch of minor ones. It wasn't that well organized. So at least seven major crusades over 200 years, about 1097 to 1291. Well, in, if you look at this map, you'll notice that Jerusalem, modern-day Israel, is Muslim. It's been Muslim since 638. I mean, shortly after Muhammad's death, they burst out of Saudi, what's now Saudi Arabia and conquer what's now Israel. So Jerusalem is a holy site, and they conquered it about 638. So it's been in Muslim hands for a long time. But Christian pilgrims have traveled there because it's a very holy site, obviously, to Christians as well as to Jews. And so they traveled there, and sometimes that went well, sometimes it didn't go well. In 1009, a little bit before this map, something happened and in the Muslim lands. There began to be a persecution and a cutting off of the flow of pilgrims, Christian pilgrims, going to see the Holy Land. And there was vandalism of the Holy Sepulcher. In other words, the tomb of Jesus. So the tomb of Jesus Christ was vandalized. And so the thought came to the Pope in Rome that, you know what? They're cutting off access to our most holy place, and they're beginning to vandalize sites that are very holy to us. And so in 1095, at this point, Pope Urban II calls for a crusade. And what he means by that is... He said, we need to go and open up access to Jerusalem so Christians, pilgrims can go to Jerusalem and make sure that this area doesn't get destroyed. This is a holy site, so I'm going to call on all the Christian nations to get together and go over there and expel the Muslims from Israel. He didn't call them to expel the Muslims from Spain or North Africa or whatever. This was a crusade toward Jerusalem and the holy site. So that's what he called for in 1095. He called for a pilgrimage. One way to think about it, and this may not be the best analogy, but it would be like if you remember in the Gulf War, Saudi Arabia let U.S. troops come into Saudi Arabia from there to stage their battle uh, against Saddam Hussein. And you may remember that a lot of Muslims didn't like there being unbelievers, non-Muslims, even in Saudi Arabia. They certainly wouldn't let them in Mecca, which we didn't. But it would be like, which would be a, a terrible thing, but suppose the American military then had taken over Mecca, right? the holiest site in Islam. You might expect that there would be armies that said, hey, we're going to take it back. That's kind of what's happening here, is we're going to take back this holy site. And so he calls for a crusade, and this is the map that I think I put in there. 
This is, a, and it's a little busy, but I just want to show you the fact that there are crusades happening. This is going to show you the first four crusades and just the route of the first four. And those first four came from 1096 or 1097. There's a lot of debate about the details here to 1204. You know, they didn't end till 1291, but this was a, this hundred year period, hot time of crusading. So there are a lot of crusades there. Well, here's an interesting question. Notice from where they come. They come from Europe. They come from England. They come from all over trying to get armies to go and free the Holy Land, free Israel and reduce it. So how do you get people to go to on this kind of a war? Well, this is, this is an interesting thing because you think to yourself, why hasn't it been done before? Why didn't they go free it before? Because England decided I don't care enough to send an army over there to do it. But the Pope said, look, this is a holy place. We need to do it. But to incent people to go, the Pope instituted something new at that time. Never been there before in Christianity. Hasn't been after. In the Catholic religion of the time, there's the idea of penance. This is going to sound very strange to you as Protestants, and you're going to find it strange because you're not going to find it in the Bible. You're not going to find it in the New Testament. But people in those times believed that when you sinned, you needed to confess to a priest, and you needed to do penance to somehow make up for your sins. And so penance would be things like uh, prayer, fasting, you might be told to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and come back, and that would be a penance. It would sort of make up for your sins. But everybody always knew, and religiously they taught that, that didn't really make up for your sins. So the Pope said, I tell you what, I'm going to institute this thing called uh, a penance, and it's called an indulgence. If you go on this crusade, that will be a penance. In other words, it will help work away your sins. And in fact, this action, going to war to free Israel, will completely balance the scales. Now, I realize when I say balance the scales, you go, wait, that's not a Christian concept. No, not really, but it was a Catholic concept at that time. And so they began to issue an indulgence. It said, if you will go fight in the crusade, that's satisfactory penance for the sins that you have done. You've kind of balanced it out. Okay, So it became a religious war. And in fact, and there are going to be people that disagree, but the history is pretty clear. This, the Crusades, were a religious war to free Israel. They were not a war to conquer Spain or North Africa or, or anything like that. They're trying to do it, and the incentive is that you uh, could get penance from doing it. And by the way, this is when wearing of crosses came about. People didn't wear the sign of the cross until then. When you put on the sign of the cross on your clothing or your earrings or necklaces or something at that time, it was a sign that you had taken a vow to go join the crusade. It was a sign that I've taken a vow. If you saw it, you go, oh, you're a crusader. Yes, I've committed to go help fight for the Holy Land, and in exchange, that's enough penance to make up for all my sins and my misdeeds up to this point. And so the wearing of crosses began then. So they began these crusades. And the first crusade, you can see, kind of went through Europe and, in, and it had some success. But I want to point out one thing that happened here. A lot of atrocities during the crusades. What you've got are a mob of people who've been told to go fight uh, the Muslims and drive them out of the land of Israel. But on the way, their fervor, I mean, these were undisciplined mobs of people. 
So there were a lot of atrocities. One of them happened to Jews. A lot of persecution of Jews along the way. There were probably 5,000 Jews killed in this first crusade. And they would go into a Jewish town or they'd just go into a town and their fervor was, well, you know what? If we're going to go fight the Muslims because they're occupying the holy place, the Jews crucified Christ. This was their reasoning. And they said, so we're going to punish them while we're here. In other words, Jesus kind of had a mob mentality. There were Christian bishops who, who tried to stop them. They oftentimes would spirit the Jews out of town. There were times when they didn't do anything and let them be massacred. In other words, there were all kinds of, of bad things happening here. So there were some persecution of Jews. It's not what the crusade was about, but there were some horrendous things done, and a lot of Jews were killed by these crusaders in their zeal. There were times when the crusaders told the Jews, you need to convert to Christianity or we're going to kill you, even though in Catholic law that was forbidden. You can't convert someone to Christianity by coercion. And yet, the crusaders obviously did many things. In other words, you weren't supposed to sin while you were on this crusade. The whole point was you're supposed to be making up for your sins. And yet they did to a certain extent. So you see a lot of these kinds of things happening. In fact, once they engage the Muslims, you see typical war. You see massacres on both sides. So there's no, nobody has any pride in this. This is just war, it's ugly, it's masses of people, and all kinds of things happen. In fact, armies at that time tended to pillage as they went. And you notice how much of Christian territory you have to go through to even get to Israel at this point? Well, as these armies would go through the Christian territories, they'd go steal food, take this, burn a town. And, you know, in other words, it was a typical army. So there were Christians that were getting, you know, having bad things happen on the way. In other words, once you unleash this, there's no controlling it. And really the Crusades were a great example of, of you just can't control an army once you unleash it. So there are a lot of, of bad things happening. There were weird things happening. You would see all kinds of interesting alliances. There are many historical cases where once they got to Muslim lands, a Christian knight and his, his people because there was no kind of overall command, would unite with a Muslim sultan over here to fight against the Christian guys, Christian enemies. I mean, it just broke down into just kind of a really chaotic type of a deal. Nevertheless, these, uh, this first crusade was successful. So I'm going to show you, this is a map right after the first crusade of Israel. I hope you can see Mediterranean Sea, what is now Israel, that strip, and there are several Christian kingdoms. The reason they were successful is not because they were basically militarily better than the Muslims. In fact, they weren't. They were a pretty undisciplined mob. But the Muslims were fighting with each other. You see that Fatimid Caliphate down in Egypt? That, the Caliphate is basically a, a, a caliph who says, I'm the successor of Muhammad, I'm going to control all the Muslim world, and we're going to go conquer the world, and I'm going to be Muhammad's successor. So top dog. So this guy, this is an Egyptian Shiite group. They're fighting other Muslims called the Seljuks. The Seljuks are Turks. So they're ethnically different, and they're Sunnis. So they're a different brand of Islam. They're fighting each other. Uh, just the Muslims fighting the Muslims at this point. They're so preoccupied that the Crusaders actually do reclaim Jerusalem. And they hold it for about a hundred years. So the first crusade was successful. It's about the last one I can tell you that was successful. Militarily, the Crusades didn't hurt the Muslims much at all. But the Muslims have, have varied ethnically at this point. They start out as all Arabs. 
in Muhammad's time, they're all from Arabia, they're tribes of Arabia, but as they go conquering and converting, you know, forcing people to convert, some perhaps willingly, but many, 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 you're conquered, you're Muslims. Now you have Egyptians that become Muslims and North Africans, and you get Iranians, Persians, you get Turks from Turkey. These are all ethnically different people, but they all become Muslim, and now they began having ethnic differences with each other. So you get a Turkish Muslim empire fighting against an Egyptian Muslim empire, and the Crusaders take advantage of that, and they actually reclaim the Holy Land. Now they're all slapping each other on the back, high fives, and things are going really well in the Crusades. So I just want to kind of summarize now what happens here between on those first four crusades from 1197 or 1097 to 1204. There's some success and there's wave after wave of crusade as you, you get, they get, uh, they conquer Jerusalem. Then after time, they're in jeopardy. So Pope says, we need another crusade. We need to help them hold on to this land. And so their whole time is not really expansionist. They're not trying to take over the Muslim empire. They're trying to hang on to Jerusalem. They did it for about 100 years, and then they failed after that. And today, I mean, things have changed a little today, but you see mosques on the Temple Mount. So the legacy of all this is still here today. St several strange things happen. Let me just consolidate a few things here is you have later crusades kind of degenerated into battles between the English king and the French king and the German king. And so they would send there, and they would end up fighting each other as much as they fought the uh, Muslims. In other words, the crusades weren't a terribly, if, I hope you're getting the impression, this is not a terribly well-organized deal, right? And so people were there. Some of them truly believed that they would make up for their sins by fighting. Others thought, let's get rich in the process. You know, I mean, it's, you, you get just the whole gamut of human things. Probably the pinnacle for me happens in the Fourth Crusade. This is 1204. Okay, I'm going to show you this map because the blue line is the Fourth Crusade. And I want you to notice something interesting. So I've been crusading for about 100 years, and here's where things get so far off track, it gets absurd. This Fourth Crusade, you notice that it starts in Venice, and it ends in Constantinople. So the capital of the Christian Byzantine Empire. You notice it goes nowhere near Jerusalem. It doesn't even go fight the Muslims. This is a bunch of Catholic armies, Christian armies, who sail to Constantinople, which is another Christian city, but it's Eastern Orthodox, not Catholic. In Constantinople, there's tension between Eastern Orthodox and Catholics, and the Eastern Orthodox massacre a bunch of Catholics. This army goes up and sacks and destroys Constantinople. So this is a Catholic Christian army on a crusade, theoretically, against the Muslims that ends up sacking and burning a Christian Eastern Orthodox city. I mean, it's like, it's just crazy at this point in time. So I want you to get a sense of the crusades being, being very bizarre, not well organized. And I'm going to tell you why you, that's not the narrative that you're hearing right now, but this is the history. You see things like the Children's Crusade in 1212, which has been mythologized, but basically, you talk about a mess. In 1211 to 1217, there was a truce between the Muslims and the Christians in Jerusalem. So no fighting around Jerusalem. But even so, in 1212, a bunch of people, popular uprising, maybe 30,000 youth, and older people get together in Europe 
and they start marching and say, we're going to go to march to Jerusalem and free Jerusalem. Well, there's a truce there, but whatever. And so they all get together and they wander around. They never get anywhere near Jerusalem. They never get anywhere at all. They never do any fighting. But they go down in history as just this crazy children's crusade. Does that make sense? I mean, you get all these stories come out of the crusades. And if you're getting the sense that historically this is a mess, that's the crusades. They were marginally effective in some ways that they took over, they reclaimed Jerusalem for 100 years of the 200, but at the end of the day, nothing happened. I'm going to show you a map in a second, and you're going to say, that looks remarkably like the map before the Crusades. Exactly. Didn't change anything historically. Didn't increase the lands of the Christian empires or anything. By the way, one other really interesting thing happened here. This is a side note, so this is for free. Remember I told you that the Pope gave these indulgences? And what an indulgence was, was it just said. All it said, it wasn't permission to sin. What it said was, if you go on the crusade, we'll consider that a penance. I mean, it's like paid in full, right, for your sins that you've done up to this point. Instead of Hail Marys or whatever, you're good to go. Well, by this point in time, you've got a lot of people making a vow to go, but they don't actually go because you can't get organized to get these people over there. They don't have money to buy a ship's passage to get over there. It's not an organized army, and so they don't go. So the Pope says, gosh, I have a dilemma. I told you if you went to fight, you'd have penance for your sins, but you can't go fight. I'll tell you what, if you'll just pay a certain amount of money, we'll just call it even, okay? And so the idea of an indulgence in 1213 became, oh, you made the vow, but it's not your fault you can't go. I'll tell you what, if you'll give the church the money you would have spent going to fight, we'll just pretend that you went to fight. And so your, your penance is paid and your sins are wiped out. A few hundred years later, think Martin Luther, think you know, uh, Ref Protestant Reformation, that's going to morph into buying forgiveness for your sins. But it came out of this time period. So let me fast forward now to the end of the Crusades and let me give you the legacy of this. The legacy of the Crusades after 200 years is pretty much nothing changed. Nothing changed. At the end of that time, Muslims had all the territory that the Muslims had before that time. One big thing changed. The Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church were never going to reconcile. Not going to forget that whole burning of Constantinople deal like, oh, sorry, thought you were Muslim. I don't think so. You know, not getting over that. And still to this day, those churches are not united. There's an Eastern Orthodox Church, there's a Catholic Church, right? Still haven't forgotten that whole Constantinople thing in 1204. So a lot of things came out of it, but not much for the Muslims. It really didn't change things very much at all. So, Crusades to Modern Times. So I want to pick up there. That's the Crusades. It's a blip in history. It really didn't affect the Muslims much. Were there awful things done? Absolutely, there were, were awful things done there. In that, in that time period. There were awful things done by Christians and Muslims at all kinds of times, but perhaps more so in that time frame. But it was a disorganized mess. After that, I'm going to show you what's called the Ottoman Empire. Okay? Notice the geography again. You notice Arabia, northern Africa. They've lost Spain at this point, but look all the way up into Hungary, Bulgaria. Anatolia is Turkey. Ottoman Empire is a Muslim empire based in Turkey. So these are Muslims, Turkish Muslims, and they are 
the Muslim Empire. That map doesn't look a whole lot different than 750 AD, doesn't look a whole lot different than 1095, doesn't look a whole lot different at the very end of the Crusades. In other words, the Muslims have continued to occupy a lot of that territory from right around the time, and they're trying to expand. The Ottoman Empire is trying to expand. This empire goes all the way up to World War I. So what I'm trying to show you is there's an interesting continuity between the time of Muhammad all the way up to the time of World War I. That map hasn't changed much. Crusades certainly didn't do anything to change that map. But it also shows you that that expansionistic tendency has been there all along in Islam. So the Ottoman Empire finally falls apart in 1914 up to current times. A lot of atrocities in that time period. In, uh, you can go to, in Serbia today, you can go look at a place called, the, it's, it's the Tower of Christian Skulls. You know, so it's a massacre of Christians and they made the skulls into a big tower. You can go look at that. That happened in 1809 by the conquering Muslims of Serbia. 1915, that Ottoman Empire of Muslims killed between one and two million Armenian Christians. This is a genocide, the Armenian genocide in 1915. So my point to you is, is that there's a, a historical trend going on there. I'm not telling, what I'm not telling you is every Muslim has been at war with every Christian or every Jew throughout history. That's not my point. Um, but looking at this historically, you will see that this idea of jihad, this armed struggle against the unbelievers, is a very consistent movement throughout history. Okay? Let me pause there, because then I want to kind of move to an evaluative framework. So I, I realize that's not a lot of history, but I hope it's a good framework of history, and it'll allow us to draw some conclusions. Questions? Um, yes. Why was Jerusalem important to the Muslims? Jerusalem is important to the Muslims because it's the third holiest site uh, behind Mecca and Medina. There's here, the short version. I'm going to try not to be long-winded. Basically, there's a story in the Quran that Muhammad was flown to the Temple Mount, ascended to heaven, came down to the Temple Mount from heaven, and then back to Saudi Arabia in one night, called the Night Journey. And that area is whole. That's one of the reasons. So Jerusalem is a holy site. The Temple Mount is a holy site for Islam. Not the holiest, but it is a holy site for Islam. Is there any credibility to the idea that the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, was declared a holy site um, just to trump Jerusalem as a Judeo-Christian site? In other words, I think that question is asking, is there any truth that the Muslims are on the Temple Mount just to keep the Christians and Jews from being on the Temple Mount? Well, the, the question is that it was falsely declared a holy site. Oh, falsely declared a holy site. Just to lend credibility to... It is a holy site to the Muslims. I mean... From their point of view, I'm talking to you from a Muslim point of view, they think the dome, the other mosque up there is the Dome of the Rock. And you can go up there, and in our trip coming up soon, we will go up there. It's an interesting place to be. There are things you can't do. By the way, talking about Jesus is one of those things you can't do. You can't take your New Testament up there. But you can go see the, the mosque. The Dome of the Rock is over a holy site. That's the place where Muhammad ascended. So Muslims do consider it a holy site. Now... There's a lot of interesting things when you get up there, and I won't spoil the surprise for those that are going on the Israel trip. The particular Quranic verses that are on those 
are definitely an in-your-face statement against the Jews and the Christians. But you'll have to go to Israel for me to tell you why that is. What took over the inner part of the Arabian Peninsula on this map if it was not Muslim? What took over the inner part? It is Muslim, just nobody cares. I mean, there's nothing there. Ah, until we find oil, now people care. But at this time period, it's Muslim, just nobody goes there, it's a humongous desert. So consider it the Muslim area. That's a good question, but there's nothing significant in that except that no one knows because no one went there, right? No water, no nothing. Where does Richard the Lionheart fit in? Richard the Lionheart, uh, Third Crusade, uh, kind of noble type of a uh, thing. Robin Hood, Richard the Lionheart, Third Crusade, England, Crusader goes over, Saladin, who is the great noble or considered to be historically, it may be a little revisionist, but historically a noble Muslim commander. And there were some commendable things about, about him. That's that really cool, glamorous story of history, and that happened in the Third Crusade. Um, where do you get most of your history, and do you have a reference that you would recommend? Gosh, that's a good question. Most of what I'm telling you is really a very surface amount. I mean, you can go a lot deeper than this, but this, I hope, gives us enough perspective and makes it easily accessible to you. There's no one place. You really pull this together from a lot of different places. So I'm not aware of any place that'll, that'll tell you all of this, at least not in an accessible way. But if you will, uh, there are some great books being written about the creation. The only thing I'll warn you about is if don't just read one book because there are many different perspectives on this. You were probably taught one, what you were taught in grade school about the Crusades is not what is being taught now about the Crusades. What you were, might have been taught about Muhammad is being taught something a little different. History hasn't changed, but we tend to have fairly revisionist views of history. The best way you can get around that is to read widely in it. But good question. I wish I had a really simple answer for you. But there are a lot of different perspectives, and any given book will have a particular perspective. Well, let's fast forward to, uh, I want to talk to you about one other interesting development, is this answers the issue of, and let's move on to modern day, Muslims with hostility and imperial designs toward unbelievers and towards Jews and towards Christians. But what you see now in modern caliphates is you see a lot of Muslims killing other Muslims. Show you briefly that, because I think that's an interesting question. This is in the 20th century. So this is Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. So this is the resurgence. Again, I don't want you to think of Muslim extremism. Muslim jihad is not a new thing. I hope that that's clear to you from history. But it, there was a resurgence of this in the 20th century. And that makes a lot of sense, but time doesn't permit us to talk about why. But notice, he says, if you suffer death in the way of Allah, it will be your profit in this world and your reward in the next. Now, all of a sudden, jihad has been highlighted as if you die while you are fighting those unbelievers, Jews, Christians, pagans, you get a pass into heaven and consequently you see all this this rise of violent extremism a resurgence of it if you will but that's interesting that says why you might see more resurgence but how can you get muslims killing muslims or even muslims killing women and children now muhammad did some of that but the quran also says you're really not supposed to do that in some of the sayings of of the prophet 
you get this. The prophet was asked, and this is, these are uh, collections, the Hadith are collections of the actions and the sayings of Muhammad. So they're not considered inspired or revelations from God, but they're recollections of things he said and did. And one of the things he said was the prophet was asked whether you could attack these pagan warriors at night because you probably would end up killing some of the women and children. And the prophet replied, basically, they're pagans too. And so you would see later Islamic armies then, sorry, if you're going to make an omelet, you've got to break some eggs. And sometimes you might have to break some Muslim eggs. Introduce you to Zawahiri. This is getting really current. This is the Egyptian-born leader of Al-Qaeda. And he said, whoever loves an unbeliever is an unbeliever. Notice how this is transferring just a little bit. Now it's not just okay to war against Christians and Jews and unbelievers, but it's okay to war against Muslims who aren't real Muslims. And that kind of sets the seed for a little different kind of jihad. So when you see ISIS, for example, that's the one we know best. That's not the only group doing this out there, but they're dominating the news. You notice that they're not just beheading Christians and pagans. They're beheading other Muslims, too, but they're not what they would consider devout Muslims. This is something that al-Qaeda kicked off, and ISIS has taken to a whole new level. And so you do see tension within Islam over this issue. You notice that with ISIS, for example, obviously they're in Syria and they're in Iraq trying to take it over, so you have Syrian and Iraqi army elements fighting them. You have Egyptian airplanes fighting them. You don't see a lot of other Muslim troops, which is very interesting, but you will see the Muslim world distancing themselves from this to a certain extent. They're not necessarily distancing themselves from the idea of a jihad. There's been 1,400 years of precedence of fighting against them. 1948, when Israel declared its independence, who attacked them? Every single Muslim nation around them attacked them all at once. So it's not really the issue of fighting against unbelievers, but there, there are real issues inside Islam of how and who and what, what you do to fellow Muslims. Okay? Modern world, that's an interesting map. That's Islam today. That's even bigger than what you've seen historically, isn't it? It's very hard to maintain from a historical point of view that Islam is not an expansionist religion. Do not misunderstand. I'm not telling you that every Muslim is ready to go to war with other people. That is not even slightly true. There are Muslims who practice that religion in a way that is not warlike. I'm just going to show you the sweep of history from 632 A.D. to now, and the maps can do their own talking to you. It is very expansionistic, and it is militarily expansionistic. That's just a fact about Islam. That doesn't mean all Muslims believe that, but that is a historical fact about Islam. That's kind of ingrained, and that's where, when we look at, are there moral equivalencies between the Crusades and the Jihad, I think that's a ridiculous question. It's not ridiculous to say, were there atrocities committed? Absolutely. Every group of people has committed atrocities, whether it's the atheist Bolsheviks, the atheist communists in China, whether it's the Christians against Christians, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Sunni, Shiite, whatever, everyone has committed atrocities. That does not mean they're all the same. Probably no one is going to call a serial killer in the United States the same as, as Adolf Hitler, who killed millions of people. Those, those aren't the same. Did they both kill people? Yes. Are they equivalent? Well, obviously they're not equivalent. That's the kind of situation, the misleading situation I think we have here. With Islam, 
I think jihad is ingrained in Islam. I'm not telling you it's the only way to practice it, but just historically, it sure looks like a 1,400-year pattern. In Christianity, it does not appear to be ingrained. It appears to be an aberration. Christians, first 200 years, all the way up to 380, were viciously persecuted by the Roman Empire. Never took up arms, never had an army, quote, conquered the Roman Empire by simply dying in droves. And people began to believe in this. So there was no war whatsoever. You see Christians expanding through peace, through love, not through force of arms. In the Crusades, you see force of arms being used for religious reasons. And today, you do not see Christian. You may argue about imperialism, but fundamentally nobody says, oh, by the way, the Christian church has a Christian army who's taking up guns that are going to go fight the enemies of the Christian church. You don't see that. That has always been true to some degree in Islam. And my point, uh, obviously as a Christian, but I think the history argues for, they're not slightly morally equivalent. Crusades, jihad, reprehensible in many ways, but they're not at all the same. You see the Crusades the way you see them, and in an, in, in Islam sees it the same way because of something that happened in the 1890s. When the Crusades were over in 1297, the Muslims go, huh, glad they're gone. No big deal. We beat them pretty soundly. Actually, if you look at it, you have to realize, man, the Muslims really whipped all the Christian armies that came against them. I mean, they fundamentally, nothing got changed. They beat them away, and off they went back to Europe. But in the 1890s, so Muslims from then to 1890 didn't think much of it. It's like, yeah, we don't like the Christians, we don't like the pagans, we're trying to conquer the whole world. In the 1890s, that Ottoman Empire was having a lot of trouble, and they were being defeated by various people. And the Ottoman Empire, very smart move, said, you know what, we need all the Muslims to rally to us, because a lot of the Muslims didn't like them either. Said, we need them all to rally, I'll tell you what, you know what's happening? Let's get all the Muslims to unite by saying this is not different countries fighting the Ottoman Empire. This is all those unbelievers fighting the Muslims. That narrative of the Crusades didn't begin until the 1890s. Today, you look at the Muslim world, uh, and what do they say? This battle that's happening in the Middle East is ISIS. What If you ask ISIS, who are they fighting against? The unbelievers. We're trying to take over our land. This is the new modern crusades. Muslims didn't think that until the 1890s, and it was a myth that was brought up as a way to unite the Muslims, and still will do today. So the, the idea of the crusades ongoing, and this is a modern crusade, is an invention to try to unite Muslims, and you'll see that happening. Al-Qaeda tried to do that as well, tried to frame this as Muslims versus Jews and Christians and all the unbelievers. And you'll see, in fact, our government trying very hard to not frame it that way. Our armies are not Christian armies trying to conquer Muslim lands. But that's the narrative in Islam, and the reason is it's self-serving. It's a way to try to unite Islam against their common enemies. Questions? Um, who is a Christian crusader as far as the Muslim population is concerned today when they refer to crusaders, who are they talking about? Well, again, the, the modern narrative is, first of all, that 200-year period, those really were Christian crusaders. They were fighting because they were Christians, because the Pope told them it was a holy and a good thing to do, 
and they were there to try to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims. That's what we call crusaders. Modern day, some Muslims, not all, but certainly the jihadi Muslims will say, America, Israel, all their allies are modern day crusaders at war with Islam. ISIS will say, you need to join us because the unbelievers are trying to destroy all Muslims, not just ISIS. So they will label the West, all of the West, as modern-day crusaders on a holy war. Now, you and I, that's a strange thought to you and me, isn't it? There's nothing about what's happening in the Middle East that you and I would characterize holy war. When's the last time somebody came to your church and said, by the way, I'll forgive all your sins if you'll take a gun and go fight? I mean... It, that's an absurd idea to us, but it's a useful narrative in the Muslim world. So they do consider this conflict a modern-day crusade. It seems like the progression of Islamic activism becomes more militaristic and violent. Is this assumption true, and has the pendulum ever swung back to a more moderate and peaceful worldview? Yeah, it's a good question. It has, re it has gained in, well, it's gained in violence. It's also just gained in you know more about it right now. But there has been a resurgence in a very extreme form of Islam, but it is not even slightly new. I mean, Al-Qaeda's roots are in the Wahhabis and other sects of Islam that have been quite violent for quite some time. So it's not new, but I think the means to kill more people is here today and the coverage to let you know about it is here today. So it may have gotten a little worse. Have there been times where there was peace? Never across the board, but in certain places, yes. There have been, Spain is a great example. Spain really, the Muslim rulers in Spain really had more of a coexistence with the people of the book. As long as you paid the tax and didn't go tell people about Jesus, you could live fairly peacefully. There have been pockets of that. It has not been a widespread pattern, but there definitely have been pockets of that. You'll see that today. There are Muslim countries that you can go live in today as a Christian. Not always a good thing. You see even in Egypt, you'll see churches being burned. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, you're not allowed to talk to people about Jesus and proselytize. But fundamentally, you don't get killed there, generally, just because you're a Christian. So it's not necessarily intensely hostile. It's not, never been horribly friendly, but there have been times of relative peace. Certainly not ISIS, if you're a Christian, you're dead. That has not always been the case in all places by any means. Uh, during the time of the USSR, the Soviet Union, uh, were Muslims waging jihad or did they keep it squelched as they did other religions? Oh yeah, well you've probably seen in the news that there are Muslims in the former USSR and in those territories now, you just don't hear much. In China, there are violent clashes today. Uh, the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, in the 70s was a Muslim organization, but they were brutally suppressed by other Muslim nations. They tried to take over Jordan and overthrow the country. Al-Qaeda tried to take over and overthrow Saudi Arabia. Certain countries brutally suppressed it. Muslim countries brutally suppressed it. You don't see ISIS in Saudi Arabia, and there's a reason for that, is they brutally suppress it. The, the uh, Russians, very brutal in their suppression. Think about the uh, uh, Afghanistan war for them. They, they were very brutal, and they are very brutal today against their Muslim uh, jihadis. 
you just don't hear as much about it. Uh, is there a difference today between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and do the Eastern Orthodox believe in the Pope? There's a difference today between Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox. They're completely separate churches. There have been some interesting reconciliation, reconciling statements in the recent decades, by the way, but there are both Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches here in town, and they're not the same, and no, Eastern Orthodox churches do not recognize the authority of the Pope. They are still very separate. Good question. Um, this is a big question, but can you tell us the difference between the Shia and the Sunnis? Yes, we've talked about the Shiite and the Sunni split before, but I'll give you the short-winded answer. Basically, within Islam, very soon, remember, Muhammad died in 632, and his successors, like the one person who's going to be the caliph, the successor to Muslim and carry on and conquer the world for Islam, there became to be some very human disputes about who's going to succeed him. Basically, there were two schools of thought. One was, we, I'm, I'm really painting with a broad brush. One school of thought was Ali, who's related to the prophet, the Shiites. He should be the leader, and it should be the religious leader and the military leader should be the same guy. Sunnis said, oh no, it doesn't need to be a relative of the prophet and your political leader and your religious leader, two different guys, that's Sunni. Things got violent early, early on, and you have Muslims fighting Muslim over succession, and it just got worse and worse over history. So they're both Muslim, and they have long, 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 as in 1,300 years of animosity with each other over time and still today have different views about how to spread Islam. But as far as jihad and violence go, uh, you have Iran trying to get a nuclear weapon and take this thing to a whole new level. They're Shiites. You have Shiite uh, organizations that are jihadis, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Sunni organizations. So it's not like one particular branch is violent and others aren't. That actually spans both the Shiite and the Sunnis. Okay. One more. Um, is the animosity towards the United States or towards Christians by Muslim countries based on Christian mission work that's been done or is being done? Yeah, is the animosity toward the West based on mission work? Not at all to my knowledge, that don't like you trying to convert people to Christianity, but that's really not the issue. The issue has come in modern times to fundamentally be, and basically, there's an interesting point to be made here from their point of view, certainly not justifying this, but my point is, is conservative Islam sees Western culture in general as very corrupt, very secular, very evil. And consequently, they see the whole Western culture as being against Islam. And Christian church would feel like secular Western culture is against Christianity as well. So you can understand that point of view. But they do see the Jews and the Christians and the West trying to aid them as being trying to uh, control the Holy Land and trying to take away Muslim lands because they think they have the inherent right all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac, they believe that they have a right to Israel, not the Jews. So there are other reasons, but generally, no. I don't think it has a lot to do with 
uh, mission work. Can you make a comment about the 12th Imam or the eschatology and how that plays in? The end time scenario of Muslims in general, and there are different flavors, the 12th Imam is not entirely Shiite, but definitely a Shiite concept, and that's the 12th successor to Muhammad, disappeared as a young boy, and the Shiites believe he will come back at the end of time, he's called the Mahdi, and by the way, the Jesus will come with him, Jesus will be a Muslim, and we're just going to do some serious destruction of non-believers. We're going to do a major league jihad. Okay, that's their view of the end time. Sunnis see it a little differently, but still similar. So ISIS, for example, understands the eschatology, meaning the, the way things end. How's this thing play out? Sees it as Islam versus the rest of the world. And Allah and Allah's messengers are going to come back, and they're going to be victorious, militarily victorious, over the rest of the world, and the whole world becomes Muslim or it dies. In a nutshell, that's the eschatology. ISIS ready to play it out. It's like, let's just start this war right now. The fear is Iran's like, yeah, let's start this war, but I need some better weapons. And that's why people are a little worried about the nuclear weapon, because they do indeed have an end time scenario that involves them killing an awful lot of unbelievers. So the eschatology, the way this ends, the religious motivation, to say that there's no religious motivation in these wars is delusional. I mean, ISIS and the jihadi elements see a very religious purpose in this one with which we vehemently disagree, one with which some Muslims would disagree as well. Nevertheless, they see a very religious point of view. So in summary, I hope that this sketch, and it's just a, a, a really a sketch of history, gives you a feel for what I would contend is that Christianity is not characterized by violence. What you saw in the Crusades was reprehensible, but it was fundamentally an aberration of Christianity. Jihad, not all Muslims are violent by any means, not even close. Nevertheless, this idea of armed conflict is built into, I believe, the early history and the current history of Islam, and consequently, it is a powerful narrative in our world. And I think Muslims who want to practice their religion in a way that doesn't involve that, they're welcome to interpret the Quran however they wish, but the way that the jihadis are interpreting the Quran, they have a point. Let me just put it that way. They, they have a point. And I think it's incumbent upon Muslims, and I think many Muslims would agree with this, is that we too need to speak against that version of Islam. But to say that that's not actually Islam, unfortunately, belies some of the facts. To say that it represents all of Islam is also very, very, uh, very uh, untrue as well. So I don't want to exaggerate this. I just want to show you, I think there's really significant differences between Christianity and Islam, and certainly between the Crusades and Jihad. So I hope that's been helpful to you, uh, to give you a little perspective. I'll let you think it through yourself, but I'd like to think it through from the perspective of what do we actually know historically. Next, we're going to do the story of Jacob. And here's the interesting question about Jacob. So Abraham has a son Isaac, has a son Jacob. Jacob is a rascal. And he is the founding father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's my question. And you should come to this story asking this. How did they ever let this guy get in the Bible? That's what we're going to talk about next time. Thank you, guys. <laughs>